<laughs> now come to the in the corner back mother one pound. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of Trying to Herd Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous folks and see what rolls to the top. And at the end of the podcast, I will reveal the source of the quotes. Alrighty? First quote is, I hate feeling ashamed. I hate where I'm from. I hate watching my friends get everything their hearts desire. I gave into that hatred, and I turned on what I believed in. I didn't have to. I personally can't identify with that. Now I can't identify with that. Was there a time that you could? I don't think I ever saw my friends as having everything they had. You know, there were people in different, you know, cliques and cultures that I associated myself with that I saw that were kind of at the apex of that. They were at the apex of cool. They were the trendiest of the trend. They, They played in a band that had a regular following. You know, you look at that and you're like, oh man, that's just, I would, I'd give anything to have that. I guess that's about as close as I could have ever gotten to saying that I hated where I came from and I uh, saw everybody else getting what I wanted because um, most of the people that I grew up with with friends and were around and they, they were all kind of from the same area. You know, I was real big into the, the early 2000s music scene and going to the shows and there was a whole culture involved in that and almost like a hierarchy of like how mm-hmm. cool you were and what shows you went to and can how... i ask you it's like a super personal question sure. your mother if i remember correctly what left she did well, did you ever get jealous of your friends and their mothers i really didn't i was so attached to my dad mm-hmm. i guess it was just a natural instinctual survival thing at a young age but like throughout my whole life i mean i had a very small family in general like you know a couple grandparents a couple aunts that was it 99 percent of the year it was just me and my dad probably a reason i didn't leave home till i was 26. i felt very lucky not really religious at the time at all but looking back i'm very blessed to have a parent that cared for me so much i i guess the biggest problems i have with that is i guess he saw the fact of him being my sole parent uh, made him extremely overprotective up until I was 18 at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't get to go to the places that my friends got to go to. Didn't get to start going to shows till a lot of people I knew were already going. Plus, so, you're, you're all he has. Uh. Right, exactly. It was, uh, and we, we were all each other had for a long time. And I'm totally not trying to be funny when you're I ask this. Was he a good mother, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, he was as nurturing as anybody could expect anybody to be. And, and granted, I love my dad with all my heart. And uh, he's a simple guy. You know, he, uh, he he dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. My entire life, he's pretty much done nothing but deliver newspapers and drive shuttle buses to make a living. You know, I've tried you know, being that where I'm at now financially, I've offered to help him remove himself from the area he's in because he, he lives in a very declining area he's upside down in his house and but he, he won't leave i don't know if he's hanging on to memories of my childhood or if he just doesn't want to be forced out of his neighborhood by crime or or what it is the older i get obviously i think it's just a natural progression you see the more flaws your parents have they're more humanized but as far as being a parent and loving and taking care of me and doing anything I could imagine, even looking back on it now, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. I feel like I had more than I ever could have deserved.
again. I hate feeling ashamed. I hate where I'm from. I hate watching my friends get everything their hearts desire. I gave into that hatred, and I turned on what I believed in. I didn't have to. I'd say over the last eight or ten years, I've grown to be quite confident about myself, and I don't fall into the ring of, of where I used to be. To what reaches me intellectually with that phrase would be, it's amazing most people just never are intentional about knowing who they are. And they never take that adventure and make that trip to finding that out because it will change your life. You'll never be the same once you start to figure yourself out. How does one go about doing that? Say someone's listening and is like, hey, I want to find myself. It's <laughs> a good question. How did you um, find yourself? Let's put it that way. Well, for one, first thing is, is you have to be okay with being embarrassed. You have to be okay with throwing yourself out there and and doing things that are not like everybody else and, and being okay with disagreeing and being okay with doing something that's odd or, or weird. And it's a lot of peer pressure issues. It's so much easier just to get on the wagon and, you know, ride the ride that everybody else is riding because it's popular. But, you know, we spend so much time watching friggin' TV and being entertained. We don't even give ourselves a chance to explore who we are. And so I think I just think the first step is just to be okay with that. And you have to just know that the first thing to even come close to begin the journey of finding out who you might be is being okay with being weird and being different. Because we're all weird and different. We're just, we don't want to admit it. Especially young people, they would say to you, if I be myself, I don't have any friends. Yeah. Well, we're afraid of that. But in my mind, I think I've discovered that if you just let yourself be who you are, you're going to find out who your real friends are. And that's much more gratifying in your life than playing along with the group that is popular or, you know, they, they, it does, there's no personal, genuine relationships being built when you're just in the crowd that everybody else likes or they think they like. Because we strive so hard. I mean, people move to L.A. every day because they want to be popular. They want to be a star. People are doing it for the purpose of fame or to, to be looked at and be noticed and me, me, me. It's all, it's all that same game. So it's like part of being okay with being different and weird, I think, is also letting go of trying to do things for that reason. So I, don't, I could give a, a rat's ass about being famous for doing the stuff that I wish to do. I just want to be able to create more movies because that's what I love to do. And that's what I, I just want to be able to make money at doing what I, I feel I can do. Even if nobody sees them. Let's, let's... Even if nobody sees them. If I'm making a few bucks to pay bills, mm. that's what I'm loving to do. That's, that's who I am. And I have to not betray what I feel that I'm good at and what I feel like I was you know, designed for. And I think by... You know, trying to keep up with the Joneses and trying to, you know, hit that status quo and, and take on what's popular and follow whatever. I think you're denying and you're betraying what you possibly could be and, and figure out who you are. And people, that's the thing, it's, people are afraid of that. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is a tough hill to climb. But I think once you just throw it all out there and just realize that, People fail their whole life at doing things they hate, jobs that they hate, marriages that they hate. People fail every day at being someone that they hate or doing something that they hate. (laughs) Why not fail in life at trying to be something that you love and doing something that you love? Again, I hate feeling ashamed. I hate where I'm from. I hate watching my friends get everything their hearts desire. 
I gave into that hatred and I turned on what I believed in. I didn't have to. I was raised dirt poor in an oppressive cult where we were taught that there was only this one strict way to navigate this world. Being in this world but not of it. The meaning being that we might be here but we're not really here. We're not really interacting with it. In the same way, we know that this is a temporary place and this is not where our goals are. Why are we here though at all then, you know? I didn't want the path that they set out for me and I knew that. I did not want to go be a missionary. I flirted with that idea, but I never really bought the philosophy that they were selling. So I was thinking of other things I could do. I got offered scholarships to college, but the thing was that religion, even though there were many successful and well-off people in it, they were very discouraging of the youth, particularly the females, of pursuing higher education. Again, the dangers of worldliness um, and warping your point of view. So you got offered scholarships to religious schools? No, no, no. To regular colleges. Oh, okay. But the religion didn't want us oh, going to college. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. So even though I was rebelling against the religion, there was also, well, I can't do that either. I have to do something else. And what it turned into for me, and it wasn't just with the higher education and people who pursued that path who were encouraged in pursuing their own goals. Because I, I rebelled first against the religion, and then second against what the world was doing. The religion told me the world was wrong. The world told me the religion was wrong. I figured I'd just go out and find it for myself. But what that did for me was I ended up hating everything. Or I started out, actually, because I didn't end up that way. But I started out hating everything because it was withheld from me. I can't have this, so I should hate it. I should despise it. I should not want it. Mm. And that's how I designed. I hated gold and diamonds. I would never have those. They were overvalued, but also I just couldn't have them. It wasn't in reach. So it would be much more convenient for me to hate that. Or popular girls. I can hate the popular girls. I can be subversive and, you know, make out with their boyfriends during the Christmas concert in the teacher lounge, you know? <laughs> Really? Yes, really. <laughs> this was important to me as part of my rebellion. If I couldn't have something, I could hate it. And that meant I didn't want it. That meant, you know, this other area, this overlooked area, this one's for me. The one that everybody else claims to hate. That's where I'm going to exist. And I'm going to hate everything popular because it's already well represented. As I went on through life, and the rebellion settled down, you know, as part of the tacking process of traveling from one extreme to another and calibrating my spectrum, I started to realize, like, gold has wonderful purposes. Diamonds have wonderful uses. They, these are attractive to the eye and they're useful tools and there's no reason to hate them. What, I mean, like, what good does that do? Do I want to begrudge? everybody else what they have? Or do I really want to operate on this principle of there's more than enough for everyone and the scarcity is manufactured? So instead of the being jealous or the instead of the hating and tying off those entire worlds to myself, I feel like now I've just saved them for a little later. Yes, I rejected the path the religion offered me. Yes, I rejected the path that scholarly institutions offered me. And these are two very 
prominent paths offered to people in this world. But then I came back around and was able to integrate. I saw that rejecting it out of hand, you know, learning what I've been given is wrong, or at least this little piece of it is definitely a lie. I can't trust any of this. I need to examine everything on its own merits. And it comes back to, well, a lot of these things, these cliches or these things that are so popular actually have merit. I like pop music now for the first time in my life. Well, since I was in elementary school. So before, you know, I got pushed so far out. But yeah, I, I had to first dismiss it all out of hand because I felt excluded. So I made that into a choice to assume that power for myself. Instead of people telling me, no, you have to leave, I'll say, oh, I'll go now. Mm. And that way, you know, that, that choice then at least appears to be my own. And at this point, considering everything on its own merits and not having to hate realizing that hate isn't even the opposite of love. It's just another form of passion. It's related, you know? So often the things I hate are the things I love, you know? And again, these are are paradoxes that we can hold together. And that tension is actually healthy for us because it keeps us from going too far to any one extreme. Again, I hate feeling ashamed. I hate where I'm from. I hate watching my friends get everything their hearts desire. I gave into that hatred, and I turned on what I believed in. I didn't have to. Well, I do not enjoy feeling ashamed. However, uh, I I don't actually have any shame about uh, my origins as far as, I mean, certainly not geographically, because... I've always had that sense of it not being up to me. Obviously, when you become an adult, you start making choices about whether you're going to stay somewhere mm-hmm. or go somewhere else. But I wasn't in a place where my parents were from. So my dad was in the military up through when I was like 12 years old. And then he went into the ministry, which for him was back into the ministry. And uh, even when he was in the military, he was a chaplain. So. Whenever I went to Waynesville, North Carolina, which I started out in Camp Lejeune, which is North Carolina, then to Charleston, South Carolina, then to Orlando, then to Okinawa, Japan, then to just south of Charlotte, and then to Waynesville. Waynesville when I'm like 14. So I'm not really from anywhere, but I am from the southeast, and yet Japan gets thrown in there at a very (laughs) formative age. Uh really messing everything up and of course the even the southeast cities prior to that are among the most liberal of the southeast well yeah well let me I ask mean, you about that because your dad being a, a pastor and they're conservative the, the, okay. yeah, it's, that's, conservative both uh, religiously and politically y- yes okay now some of the most vehement liberals i guess uh-huh. you would say or i like to say leftists because liberal sure. is that word right. has changed over time but some of the most angry leftists right, let's put right, it that way right, right. it's amazing that almost all of them were raised by conservative parents mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of them were, were preachers kids right now i don't feel like i've got the anger so much okay and i mean part of that was just like recognizing what i did and just kind of trying to work on that uh, but of course, I, I also have a pretty good relationship with my parents. Our copacetic aspect, as far as it is, is kind of like how people are in general, where it's like, 
oh, you think that way and I think this way. And I mean, to some extent, we've had like the conversations where it's like, I don't think we can really have this conversation. Because it's going to make people upset. Yeah, right. Well, because getting to like, well, why do you think that? It's just like not my place to inquire that of like my father necessarily, mm-hmm. unless he's like really open to that. See, my mom comes from like kind of a more liberal family. Christian and her parents and grandparents are ministers and missionaries wow. and whatnot. My dad's dad is a minister. Okay. But she came from the north and like her brothers and sisters all have like stories of there was this one time where like they went to this camp. This is like in the forties and they had brought a black girl with them that just went to the church. Mm-hmm. And this is in Pennsylvania. The people at the camp were like, oh, oh, she can't be here or whatever. My grandfather was like, either she stays or we all go. And it was like a big bus load. So they ended up having a great time. Yeah. Well, you know, and she got to stay. So, I mean, there are like stories like that that kind of inform her. Now, she moved to Kentucky when she was like 14, 15. Mm-hmm. So she has somewhat of a Southern upbringing, but like me a, a different idea coming into it well let me ask you about co- uh, conservatism and race now your would you consider your your conservative father right mm-hmm. to have I don't know arcane views on race I'd say he has just probably done so much work before I was even born uh-huh. but yes and I'd say that they have stuck with him probably a little bit these aren't views that he would voice. I would say that they're subconscious mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So he didn't hate black people necessarily. N- no. However, I wouldn't say that that was always the case. You know what I'm saying? Uh, he might have been prejudiced. Yeah. One time. Okay. Yeah. If somebody has grown up in one place their whole life or only been exposed to certain types of people, they're going to have prejudices about those sure. people. And so uh, the- that changed... Because he joined the military at a young age and, you know, eventually wanted to lose his accent. The irony, talking about the folks on the left having mm. some issues with conservatives, I mean, that's a prejudice. I mean, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So. And so, like, I thought about it as soon as I said it because it's like there are people that haven't really had, you know, a good conversation with someone who's educated and conservative. Because mm-hmm. that's the main, I think problem with like the overall conversation that goes on uh, politically you know especially on on the internet and whatnot is that you know people aren't coming at things with like a real education as to like why somebody would feel this way or that way Next quote, I'd rather be with someone for the wrong reasons than alone for the right. No way. Being alone would be way better than being with somebody for the wrong reasons. I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it, <laughs> but I don't think that's a good idea. I wouldn't right. have, that quote is um, not my quote. <laughs> I wouldn't have that hanging on my, in my kitchen. <laughs> I would love to see that in someone's kitchen, just to see people's reactions. And then like you look at their spouse like... Whoa. Yeah, I should have just said. I mean, I feel like that people are with the wrong people for lots of things. Like, um, 
because they have kids or mm -hmm. because they don't have money or because they've been yeah. worn down emotionally that they can't get themselves out of it. Right. I mean, I, I guess you have friends like this? And I mean, I feel like my parents are a great example of that again. <laughs> they still together? They are still together. Do they make it work? I don't think a week goes by that my mom's not getting around an apartment. <laughs> not going to get a divorce, right. but like <clears throat> just needs a place to get away. She should have left a long time ago. Do I mean, they live here in town? They do. I mean, he's really, really um, mean to her. It's yeah. interesting she's, that he still gets to her. So she still must still love him. No, she doesn't really. <laughs> I mean, like. Then why why would it affect her? I think because like her mother didn't really love her. Her mother wouldn't let her come visit her, and so I really just feel like that she's always in a situation where she was overlooked or um, didn't deserve love, and so I think that she just makes it work because she d didn't have a career and let me ask you this because I think we I know my parents me uh, a lot almost everybody I know fights not to be their parents in some way mm -hmm. sometimes they're not horrible attributes but they may be a little annoying things and, and some of it is horrible have you had to fight it in yourself to not be your dad on certain something things yeah I went through that a lot earlier um, because, earlier this morning? No, earlier in life. Okay. okay. <laughs> I think <laughs> I felt like that this morning. No, I think that he's just pretty miserable. And so I was just, um, my knee jerk reaction when I was young was to be miserable and to oh, no. strike back a little bit. Uh -huh. And I was really nice until back in the, in the corner. And then I would just, but it was Sur like yeah. survival mode. And so. There were, I remember the time in my life where I wanted to be happy. I realized, oh, I can really be happy. Like, it's fun to be happy. I mean, I remember the moment. Okay, to get away from the guy in the lawnmower who's going about two miles an hour, and it will take about two hours to, what, cut his grass? How big is his yard? Um, about four feet by six feet. He's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe he has a learning disorder. Anyway, we, we went inside. So I remember the the time when I figured out that it was okay to be happy, like it was really okay and something that I wanted. And that was when I was with a friend and we um, we both rode bikes to the park and we went up to a really tall hill and when we got to the top, he pulled out these oranges that we peeled, which was such an odd thing for me. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. um, it was like a, a tactile uh, connection maybe? Yeah, like it, and it was a moment. Like I, I just thought that was like such a, it it was just such a moment. Excuse me, I had Taco Bell last night. Such a moment and like a visual or like, yeah, like a tactile moment, like a connection for me. That was like a happy gift. And from then on, did you decide I'm going to be happy? I think somewhere in my brain, like, yeah, I, I wanted that for myself. And I, and I realized, like, I just changed my perspective. The question you had originally asked was um, oh. about my dad and if I ever had to fight being like that. And yeah. I just think that there was a, a moment in time where I realized that I didn't want to be grumpy. And I just as assume that he was so mean and grumpy mm -hmm. that 
he must be really miserable and unhappy. Was there ever a time that you like either prayed or tried to, with through action, like be the catalyst for your dad to change to be a happy person? Yes. Well, I would try to figure out ways to make him happy. Like I would do things um, that I knew that would make him happy. Like I mean, I just I felt like that it, it made a difference to what my mom and I did. Like if we did things perfect enough, or you know, I I could kind of monitor the way they did things. Would it um, work? A lot of times, but a lot of times no, because mm -hmm. I realized at some point that it really didn't have anything to do with us, mm -hmm. even though he thought it had everything to do sure. with us. I really feel like he's just so closed off that if he just understood more about why he was acting the way he did, I think he doesn't even realize he does it. Mm -hmm. um, was his parents that way? Yes. Oh. He really has no idea that he's like that. Um, and he, for the most part, is just like um, just in one room by himself. And then um, he comes out and, you know, tells everybody they're stupid or whatever. Or <laughs> he comes back. out and tells everybody how proud they are and how much that he loves you. Like, it's uh, really, really strange. Uh, it's one extreme to another. He will go through days where he won't speak to me at all, like just not even speak. And if I ask a question, he just shakes his head yes or shakes his head no, like he won't talk. And then other days where he won't shut up. And um, but he, the way he um, converses is like he jokes with you about how you don't do things well, you know, like and so. Like, you have to realize that, that he's getting, you, you know, like, you want that. Mm -hmm. It's so weird. It's psychologically... Because it's better than the other? Fucked up. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, I mean, because you're like, yeah, my dad loves me. He's talking to me. He's tickling me. Uh -huh. um, and, I, and he's telling me, you know, like, how... You've just I'm, I'm such me. a mess. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, like, you're such a mess. Like, you can't do that. You can't do that. Like, <sighs> It's like a... Sugar-coated fist or something. Yeah, it's a brainwash. That's <laughs> yeah. what it is. Again, I'd rather be with someone for the wrong reasons than alone for the right. That's hard because I think the more you experience life and experience relationships, um, especially bad relationships, you know how much you suffer when you're in a bad relationship and you may not realize it while you're in the relationship but when you get out of the relationship and you can breathe and be alone and rediscover yourself you realize how bad it was so, so something you've experienced oh god yes i mean not to say anything bad about anybody in my past but there are times when i have been with someone that was supposed to have my heart and soul and at their best interest and i still felt completely and totally alone and instead of finding comfort in that person after I left that person it was a lot more fulfilling to me to find other ways to find comfort even in my own expression in my own creativity and my own thoughts than to try to bond with somebody else that just wasn't there now, I know you're with a new fella. Yeah. And it seems to be going pretty well. Right? Yeah. How are you able to, to, to keep your identity and also give yourself to somebody at the same time 
I think that um, it helps when that person themselves has a very, very strong identity and they are very comfortable with who they are and they are not continually seeking parts of themselves in you. If they're a whole person mm. that can stand alone and be happy and be peaceful and content, then it's a lot easier for two people to join together that are peaceful and content in their own bodies. Um, and it's not that we don't need each other, but um, it's that we don't feel less than if we're away from each other. Again, I'd rather be with someone for the wrong reasons than alone for the right. Who would say or agree with that? <laughs> I, we, surely you've known people that do that? Oh, I've definitely known people that do that. And those are people that aren't confident, that don't have self-esteem, that aren't happy being with themselves for whatever reason. So just like any other addiction, they have to find something else to fill that void or fill that space. Have you ever had that felt you've been weak enough to be with anybody? No, never. Never ever? No. You never settled? I've never settled. Well, you're friends with me sometimes. Well, okay, so once. <laughs> no, I, uh, I've, n I've never been with, you know, or stayed with anyone that I knew wasn't you don't ever good like for me or wasn't going to eventually, you know, like you get to that point where you, you look at this person and you're like, well, this is a done deal. Like, this isn't going to work out or... Mm -hmm this for whatever reason like what's the point why put yourself through you've never been at home and feeling like completely lonely and think like you know i take about anything right now or even some not not anything that, that that's well probably. not in a not in a human sense and and you know maybe yeah there's been times i've been lonely and yeah it'd be you know i think to myself like you know does anyone give a shit that I, what i'm doing right now which nine times out of ten probably aren't and that's fine i don't care like and maybe, you know, music is my addiction and that's what fills the void. But, I mean, I'm perfectly happy staying at my house, you know, looking through music, discovering new music, you know, recording new music, whatever, anything like okay. that. And that's, that's what I take comfort in and I take solace in. But if you could share all the things you love doing at home with somebody else, would that be double awesome? That would be great. But she doesn't exist. <laughs> because... There's no girl out there that likes old British synth music. There's no girl that's as cool as me. It's just what it comes down to. I mean, of course, being sarcastic, but no, I would never, never get to the point where I would just be with somebody I knew was bad for me. I mean, that's that's a classic sign of you know, look at look at you know, abuse victims. Mm -hmm. You know, they sit there and they take abuse and they get told that they're not good enough and they told they're told all these awful things mm -hmm. and they start to believe them. Just because they don't have the self-esteem, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the know-how, they don't have any of those things that give them confidence enough to say, "Hey, so you I'm have worth more than." I'm so you have enough confidence, like you, you. Yeah, I think okay. I'm, I'm pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, don't hold back. Well, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, honestly. Uh, no, we all suffer for different I'm, things. I'm, I'm of course being sarcastic, and yeah, I have my issues just like anyone else. I mean. You know, like yes, I told, you do exactly. I got subscriptions. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I no, I uh, okay. I, I, like I said, I mean, I have my issues, but it's certainly not in 
the person that I am, the things I believe in, the things that I'm interested in, like that, I, I have no, no issues with that. Okay. You know, I'm not gonna go run around naked or anything, but I'm not. <laughs> I don't have any issues with who I am and what I am and, and what I represent. And, right. And as long as you're fully clothed, you're cool with yourself. Great. I'm on. Yeah, I'm golden. Again, I'd rather be with someone for the wrong reasons than alone for the right. I can't say that I've had personal experiences of that, but but I do know that people who, friends of mine who have told me that they've been with a person for the wrong reasons. Some of those reasons had to do with, like, for them, they had to do with money or sex or um, affluence or whatever, and they weren't happy, but they, they decided that they would stay with this person. It's sort of like selling yourself out. There's two things. You can discover that the person that you thought you were with for the right reasons turns out that it's the wrong reasons. And then you have a decision to make. Okay, well, I can't be with this person anymore because if I stayed with them now knowing what I know, then I would be staying with them for the wrong reason. Right? I have been in situations like that, but but I didn't stay. I made a decision and left. And so you rip off band-aids just like that, huh? <laughs> I do. And when I rip that band-aid off, I usually take like a two-year break. I've had a five-year break before, depending on how painful it was to uh, rip it off. You have to be able to tell yourself truth. If you focus on the other person, then you can't know you. You can't know what who you are. You can't know your boundaries. You know, can't know your limits. You can't know your deal breakers or your deal makers. You can't know any of that. Right. But what about, say someone has, they're either married or they have kids and they realize they're with the wrong person. Wow. I would say wow because it seems like you would have discovered that you were with the wrong person. And say that the person is the wrong person. I don't even know if I actually agree that there is such thing as a wrong person. There is a person that's not right for me. But when you say that someone's not right for you, really, and this is what I believe, it really means that I'm not right for that person. Someone that I like to read, I like to read a, a woman by the name of Marianne Williamson wrote a book called Return to Love. And she said that instead of trying to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright, you should try to become Mr. or Mrs. Wright. So the whole point there is that if you have children, then it's hard to know how is it that you could have kids and not have discovered. Well, there's lust. There's people get drunk and then they accidentally make a kid. That's one. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about three. Well, <laughs> I guess they keep on rolling, I guess. I say with most traditional societies, and this is the rule of round, this is not just Judeo-Christian background, but, you know, marriage was supposed to be till death do us part, and, you know, a lot of people have tried to, to make it work because of that. And sometimes, I know personally, I, I've seen some people that have turned around something that was truly bad at one point, and, and they were both willing to work on it, so that's a big part of it. But then you've seen others that just... They have zero peace in that house, and you know, they probably scarred the kids in the process. I have a friend, when I speak to him and I see him, he's kind of like a really laid back, and I'll say, how you doing? And he'll say, just trying to stay free. <laughs> and he's married, but what he means is not trying to be away from his wife. What he means is trying to grow in his life, because he and I have talked about it, grow in his life so that as he frees his wife to become who she is and to grow into who she is, 
that he too can grow into who he is. So they grow together. If every time, and this is just coming from me, if every time my partner or spouse says to me, I am transitioning or I'm becoming someone different, I think I want to try this, not to let it destabilize me. For instance, I was in a relationship a smallest change would be unsettling. Like, let's say I like chocolate cake, and then one day at dessert time, I decided to get like apple pie. And this person would be like, "You're gonna eat apple pie?" I'd be like, "Well, yeah, I just think I want that today." And they would be disturbed by that. I, I didn't know you liked apple pie. I didn't even know you liked apples. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's the test. And so, so I'm thinking, thank God this isn't a real change. Yeah. This person is about to come undone. What if I had ice cream with it? You oh, might Lord. not be able to survive. So I assume you started to find a way out of that relationship? Uh, yeah, I did. Because it was, it was a lot of things like that. And last quote. You can't tell a book by its cover, but you can tell how much it's going to cost you. That automatically causes me to look back and, I, and, and recognize, and there's a few times that there were people that I did judge them by the cover, and I was completely wrong. Mm -hmm. I can think of a friend of mine right now that I thought he was the weirdest dude I'd ever met, and I was like, please don't talk to me the next time I see you, yeah. guy. <laughs> and box. he ended up being one of the most brilliant, amazing life-giving people I've known. And I thought he was going to be the true opposite of that. You know, right. one of those people when they were. But that reminds me of when you, you, you can tell how much it's going to cost you. Oftentimes you do. You just, I, I say there's a basic difference. There's two different kinds of people, those who take life and those who give it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the years as you, especially if you're in the people business like I am, you learn because of those experiences of judging wrongly, uh, which I don't like to use the word judging in the sense of like discerning wrongly. Is, uh, discerning is, is yeah. the better word, yeah. But you can kind of say it just by how people talk to you or how, you know, do they obviously take an interest in you or do all you have to do is ask them one question and they will fill your ears for the next hour with banality kind of stuff. And so when you see that, those indicators, uh, yeah, you, you can tell if I go into this relationship much deeper. Yeah, there's going to be life coming out mm -hmm. and draining and, and, and sometimes to the point of, boy, this is going to have to not end well, more than likely. It's, so, well, as a, especially as a Christian, what do you do with, with emotional vampires, we may call them? I mean, you could say yeah. this about Buddhism. They're Meaning supposed to be helping people. Yeah. yeah, And usually uh -huh. the people that need help are difficult. Sure. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. That, that's very, very true. And, and I, do, I, I know people who work in environments that we would label, in Christian environments that we would label kind of very intensive help giving mm -hmm. kinds of things that we're, whether it's dealing with those who are having, you know, under-resourced or they're in the form of just because of drug addictions or all those. Mm -hmm. I admire them eternally because they are the kind of people, and I guess the answer to it is, you have to have a much deeper conviction about people's value on, on, a, on an intrinsic level. Mm -hmm. you, you, you have to have that thing that says, this person is valuable because they're a person first and foremost, no matter what kind of layers are on top of that mm -hmm. essential humanness. <laughs> and, and they live that by conviction, and I've just watched people who can do that. Okay, so uh, you're admitting that not everybody can do that. Okay. I'm admitting that 
I think everybody probably has the potential to do it, but I do believe that some people are wired more naturally that way. I've watched it. I mean, in my experience with it is just people. They can roll with things easier. They can uh, they can take a difficult. I mean, we see that in the medical field. All so the time. if I stink at trying to help people. <laughs> Maybe there's some other job for me. Probably because you're probably not giving much help in the end. I mean, it's, it's the old thing of if you really don't value someone, you don't have to tell them that. They right. can tell. But I, I think it's kind of one of those things of all of us should be walking towards it because we know it's it, it's a fundamental good. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said a great thing about himself. He said, I know about myself that I do not enjoy the company of little children. But he also said... I know about myself that's a weakness. Yeah. It's not a strength. It's not a good thing. And so he probably at least, even though, and, and other people we know, just children are, uh, my daughter's that way. I mean, she's just, she's always just had a blast with children, very natural at it. And that's a strength. Yeah. So you ought to have, like with Lewis, you ought to have some kind of intrinsic knowing that I should enjoy these kids running around because that shows my, my larger soul. But I know I don't, so I've got to grow. And I think that's kind of where it comes down. But we all have those different leanings and shavings that we need to do in our own makeup or whatever. And even Jesus, I think, you know, on the Christian side, did leave space for that. Like, or he told the disciples to, you know, shake the dust off your feet or don't throw your pearls before swine. There is such a thing as giving your best towards something that is a... To, to somebody who's not clearly not going to change. Yeah, or... I heard one one teacher, one psychologist, and uh, in, in Bible teacher. He said that he said there are three kinds of people: basically, the the wise, the foolish, and the wicked. He said the the wise are marked by wanting to learn. The foolish are by not learning so well, and the wicked are those who manipulate. And you need to be able to discern which is which in yourself, and you need to discern which is which sometimes in relationships because if you get the wicked there's manipulation and you, he said usually you can tell by how people receive correction teachable yeah yeah again you can't tell a book by its cover but you can tell how much it's going to cost you there's a phrase we use at our shop my attitude depends on how you treat me and they've tried to enforce that to try to uh, minimize some of the bickering we've had. And, and that's true, you know, basically to let people know, you know, if you're going to have a bad attitude to that, that person, they're probably going to snap back at you. I mean, there's some people you can tell off about, you know, you're never going to like them. <laughs> but you try anyway? I've ran into people that I was sure that I wasn't going to like. I predetermined I knew how they were going to feel about things, about their ability and their smarts and all that. But I always felt like it was fair if I had to spend any time with them to give them a fair shake. Mm -hmm. And I kind of let them hang themselves, you know. But <laughs> if, if, you know, I, I would try to be fair, but yeah. I would have to say my antenna was up and I don't like people trying to buffalo their way through. But then there have been, of course, many, many cases where I found out the person wasn't anything like what I thought. I've tried to, as you finally learn, get a little smarter. I've tried to use that, you know, yeah, I don't like the way they look, I don't like the way they walk, I don't like the way they talk, I don't like their attitude or facial expressions, but until I really spend some time with them or until I talk to them a little bit, you know, I need to not make that decision until that happens. And then, then once, you know, there again, how the conversation goes, and if someone's uh, arrogant or then, you know, I really don't have a whole lot of 
you know, time to spend with somebody like that. But I think that maybe the generations before, you know, they prided themselves on uh, discriminating taste, they would call it, or, you know, refinement, and they would have, like, certain telltale signs of who was a, a refined person, who was going to be a good moral person or be productive to society. And maybe they were wrong a lot, because obviously there's been a reaction to it. And so now we have this extreme version of, you know, uh, you, you just, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Do you think we've went too far, maybe? And, and we've kind of thrown common sense out the window? Well, I don't know. I think eventually, whatever you are, it's going to be proven one way or another. I mean, you might ride the wave of deception for a while and maybe fool people for a while, but I think eventually it'll probably catch up with you. I think one of the advantages of the the social media they call, you know, there's so much at the average person's fingertips in photography and music and all kinds of art that they don't have to depend on getting a contract or whether somebody even likes their work. They still have the ability to publish it, to print it, and have it available to the masses. It's up to them whether they want to do it. And that's good because I think there has been some discoveries along the way people that maybe didn't have good speaking skills to go through an interview, or maybe they just weren't physically attractive. They may, maybe they were annoying in their appearance and they couldn't get past any producers or publishers or something like that. The social media has certainly leveled the playing field. But whether we've thrown that out the window or not, uh, I don't think so. I think we just made it really, really fair for everybody to have a chance. I think there's a lot of people that think they're pretty good and may have a good following that I don't, I don't think they're much of anything. In the back of my mind, I think, well, time will tell, you know. On the other hand, if they got thousands of admirers and believers, you know, so be it, you know. I Again, you can't tell a book by its cover, but you can tell how much it's going to cost you. Typically, humans don't cost money. <laughs> oh, really? Have you never uh, dated a girl before? Uh, yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> I just pieced together what this is really about, yeah. You're happily in a relationship, I suppose, right? Yeah, 10 years now, so. How much does that cost you? Not too... Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> then again, it's, it's, you know, we're always there for each other, so... Yeah. I wouldn't call she, that a cost. Like, she, it, when I was unemployed, she... Paid my bills. Okay, so she, you guys have carried each other. Yeah, he ain't heavy. It's my, he's my brother, kind of thing. It's like at some point, the cost isn't a problem. Again, you can't tell a book by its cover, but you can tell how much it's going to cost you. I know this girl who went to school in Cyprus, and both of her parents are educators. Like after finishing up her undergraduate there, she went to Purdue, and then she got her like PhD and she now teaches at a university in Nashville and she's very attractive very fun and could be with like a good number of people anybody that she wanted to be with she could you know attractive girl and she started dating a security guard because she just really liked him you can find that someone who dresses and seems in fact Yes, this gets guys in trouble if you think this way. If, if I'm thinking about relationships now, so, okay. you know, there's a lot of average guys, just average, not like ugly, you know, but just, you know, your guy. They won't go up to the really attractive pretty girl because they think that she is outside of, like, his price range, quality, she's not going to like me. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, especially if you're, like, past 25, 
she's already dated like the doctor. She's already dated the lawyer. She's already dated the professional football player, at least one of them. And she's tired of the douches, right? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> they're the ones who will ask her out, yeah, because they're bold and yeah, and go getters. The thing about them is like you can lose money chasing women. But you don't lose women chasing money. You feel pretty good about this same guy feels comfortable. She's really pretty. But he can also have this other really pretty girl. And he, and he's always busy. So he can lie to them and date three or four at the same time. And so at some point, she realizes she just doesn't particularly like the guy. She wants someone that she can have a conversation with who's like who's nice, who thinks that she's actually special. And this dummy, and I'm talking about the average guy now, not the, the go-getter. Like this dummy's not going to talk to her. And so she ends up going with the other guy that's below the average guy and then you look at the relationship and you go how did she end up with him mm-hmm. you ask that question because almost like the answer is because you did not talk to her when you right. had the opportunity because the guy below her just had nothing to lose anyway yeah, yeah exactly if you're the nerdy guy who not super super dorky but you know you don't have it quite together finish your undergrad work for a year or two date around go off the really hot girl that wasn't paying attention to you in freshman year you'll have her yeah, beautiful babies together. And the source of the quotes? All of these nuggets of wisdom are from the same source, and here they are in their original context, in which I extracted and somewhat paraphrased from. I feel so terrible for what I've been doing. I hate feeling ashamed. I hate where I'm from. I hate watching my friends get everything their hearts desire. I gave in to that hatred, and I turned on what I believed in. I didn't have to. You didn't. So you won't do it again. I don't think anybody ever thought anything about me other than I look good next to him. I went along with it because I'd... I'd rather be next to somebody for the wrong reasons than alone for the right ones. I'd rather be right. Than stand being alone. Nobody can stand being alone. The minute you stop thinking there's someone out there for you, it's over, isn't it? You couldn't score her in a million years. A, you're too shy and closed up to even approach her. And B, she'd kill you. Chicks like her have one thing on their mind and you don't make enough of it to matter to her. I can't touch a book by its cover. Yeah, but you can tell how much it's gonna cost. Well, that's deep. You want shallow, call Amanda Jones. These are all clips from my favorite movie of the 1980s, Some Kind of Wonderful, which was written by John Hughes, directed by Howard Deutsch, and starring Eric Stoltz, Mary Stuart Masterson, Leah Thompson, and Craig Schiffer. And here's a few fun facts about the film. First, John Hughes of Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller fame was unhappy with the ending of his Pretty in Pink and so decided to rewrite it, switch the genders, and hence Some Kind of Wonderful. Second... Leah Thompson and Howard Deutsch met on the set of the film and are still married to this day. Third, the characters of Amanda Jones, Watts, and Keith Nelson are named after members of the Rolling Stones. And last tidbit, Leah Thompson and Eric Stoltz have met before when Stoltz was supposed to be the original Marty McFly in Back to the Future. And by the way, all the music used today is from the soundtrack of the film. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. 
Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Oh,